Welcome to London Lopate at Large. I'm London Lopate. The Battle of Guadalcanal was the first offensive operation undertaken by the United States and its allies in the Pacific War. It was fought from August 20th to November 15, 1942, and those three months of air battles between when the first Marine Air Unit arrived on the island and when the last enemy attempt to retake the island was defeated were perhaps the most important of the Pacific War. The late Eric M. Hamill interviewed more than 150 American participants in the air campaign at Guadalcanal. Joining me now is Pacific War expert Thomas McKelvey Cleaver, who has drawn upon those diary entries, interviews, and firsthand accounts to tell the story of that historic battle. His book, The Cactus Air Force, Air War Over Guadalcanal, is published by Osprey Publishing, and it brings Thomas McKelvey Cleaver to our show now. Welcome. Hi. Now, August 20th will be the 80th anniversary of the operation. Is it cost? Well, actually, August 7th, Sunday, is the anniversary of the invasion. Of then the invasion. Have, then they have 20 days before they don't have any air cover. Uh-huh. So, uh, is there a holiday of sorts? No. <laughs> no, I, I would probably... Uh, I would probably take a guess that a uh, good 90% of Americans don't even know about it. <laughs> yeah. Well, maybe some of them will learn about it from this conversation and obviously from reading so. your book. Now, Eric Hamill, so. Eric Hamill interviewed over 150 American participants in the air campaign at Guadalcanal for 40 years, beginning in 1961. Didn't he interview junior officers and enlisted men whose stories and memories yes. weren't part of the official history? Yeah. He he um, he 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 did. Eric was Eric was the guy who, and I I consider the inventor of of interviewing these people like this. He started doing this when nobody else was doing it. As a matter of fact, um, his the first interview he did with one of the guys with the leader of Flight Three Hundred when that when that guy had become a rear admiral and he was seventeen, hmm. and it's. And it's an interview that I would be happy to do today. Um, well, you can't because he, uh, none of these people are alive. Right. None of them are alive. Eric interviewed them all when they were alive, when nobody else was, was caring about it. And he got all the people who aren't by name in the history books. And he also interviewed a number of the people who are in the history books by name, but he, but he asked questions that nobody else asked. So he got answers nobody else got. And uh, so it was an amazing amount of stuff. I, I basically, I Eric Eric was one of my best friends, and he's also the he's also the reason why anybody knows me. Uh, he he got me published, and uh, when he uh, when he was diagnosed with Parkinson's in 2018, he told me that he had been working on this book for quite a while and was hoping it would be his last. And he and then he went on about the fact that the 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 writing part of it was difficult for him and i said well there's no reason why we can't <clears throat> we can't both of us uh, work on it you do the brain work and i'll do the scut work and he said that sounds good mm-hmm. and so we and so osprey was very happy with that idea and um, we started working on it but parkinson's got the continued getting the the, the worst of him um, my wife has it too it's a terrible disease oh. um, and uh Eventually, after about eight months, he finally said to me, Tom, I can't remember what I said to you before you responded to me. i got to stop. 
and three months later he died. Hmm. Um, and about six months after that, four, about four to six months after that, his son Daniel contacted me. He'd been going through Eric's effects. He found our emails. He found all the work we've been doing. And he asked me if I would be interested in completing the book for Eric, and I said, of course I would. And Osprey was really happy to put the book back together again. And so uh, Daniel sent me Eric's material. I got three and a half gigabytes of material wow. to go through. Uh, he had digitized all his interviews and uh, proceeded to proceeded to do the book. And not just interviews. He also I, got. I thought I was I thought I was knowledgeable about Guadalcanal, and I learned new things. Not just uh, the interviews. He also gained access to their diary entries, didn't he? Yeah. He had three different people who had diaries, and uh, and one of them, uh, Ensign Cash, Regi Cash Register, as his nickname was, um, <laughs> is just one of those wonderful diaries that he, he began it um, when he found out he was going to the Pacific, and he kept it until he got through Guadalcanal, and um, he was just alarmingly honest about himself. The diaries, nowadays, a, a diary or a letter is the closest thing you can get to um, interviewing the person, and and so and I've been fortunate to find other diaries and it, for other of, of my work, um, and it's just wonderful to get those things. Um, it really gives you a you know a view into the heart of people who are there. Well, how much is revealed new that isn't included in the official records? Mostly just how people were scared, and people were were worried, and and the difficulties that it yeah it's. It's new in that it confirms just how hard it was in detail, and it was terribly hard. My my uh, my late uh, father-in-law was was one of the Marines at Guadalcanal, and and he said that those that those five months he was there were the five months he remembered best in his life, <laughs> for, for reasons he didn't want to remember. Well, this was part of a bigger Japanese campaign. The Japanese attacked the U.S. Pacific Fleet at Pearl Harbor, obviously, on December 7, 1941. Uh, that crippled much of the U.S. battleship fleet. But that was nearly eight months before the, the Battle of Guadalcanal, which was yeah, the first— Guadalcanal is—basically, everybody says that Midway was the, was the battle that, that turned things around. Um, I would argue that Midway— was the battle that ensured we wouldn't lose. Mm -hmm. But Guadalcanal was the battle that ensured we would win. Um, well, there was also the we Battle of the Coral Sea. We went into Guadalcanal. Essentially, the, the U.S. and the Japanese were still pretty equal in, mm -hmm. the, in the Pacific. Uh, that wasn't the case after, afterwards. Um, the Japanese were able to, to, to take offensive action at Guadalcanal that they never took anywhere else. And... Uh, Basically, the, the difference is, after Midway, the Japanese could still fight us offensively. After Guadalcanal, they could never do that. Well, the Japanese had made two attempts to extend their defensive perimeter in the South and Central Pacific. Uh, right. uh, but they'd been thwarted in the Battle of the Coral Sea in May of that year and, and the Battle of Midway in June of that year. So, right. Uh, had they taken on more than they could handle when they attacked the U.S.? Oh, definitely. But, or were they stretching um, themselves Admiral thin? Yamamoto, when he, Admiral Yamamoto was the only senior Japanese 
uh, leader, military or civilian, who had ever traveled to the United States. He was the U.S. Atta- the, the military attaché in the U.S. in the 20s, and he traveled extensively through the United States while he was here. And when he was told to, to plan the attack on Pearl Harbor, he responded that, I will run wild for six months. After that, I can promise nothing. Um, hmm. And essentially, if you look at it, uh, he missed his he missed his uh, prediction by three days because um, Pearl Harbor happened on December seventh and Midway happened on June fourth, uh, three days short of six of exactly six months. Um, but uh, you know, there was the, the Japanese were never more than fifteen percent strong as the United States. The, the Japanese economy. There was the the only way that the Japanese could have won would have been if if we'd been less resolute in the spring and and, and more willing to to listen to the doom and gloom, um, and if we we could have surrendered uh, we could have surrendered or said we you know we'll stop after um, after April seventh when the when when Bataan fell in the Philippines. Yeah, ten days ahead of the Doolittle raid, a month ahead of of, of of um, of the uh, Battle of the Coral Sea. Uh, this is one reason why I tell people, you know, never predict the future. It's going you 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 know just because you say, oh, we can't win. Well, guess what? We weren't supposed to win at Coral Sea. We weren't supposed to win at Midway, and we and we weren't supposed to win at Guadalcanal, according to the pessimists. Hmm. But look at that record. Record otherwise. Well, the Japanese were taking over a large part of that area. They also attacked and took control of Hong Kong. You mentioned the Philippines, Thailand, Malaya, uh, Singapore, uh, the Dutch East Indies, Wake Island, New Britain, and Guam. So were they stretching themselves thin on top of it all? Yes. Um, They were able to do what they did because the European powers were involved in the European war. Um, and, And also because for you know, re- for a lot of reasons, uh, the uh, Western powers never took the Japanese seriously until they until <laughs> they got the bloody nose they got on, in December of 1941. Um, you know, we had we had the idea that you know nothing they invented, nothing they built was original, and you know you can go back and look at the, you know the buck-eyed monkeys when it was you know with with Coke bottle glasses that we did in our cartoons mm-hmm. of them. Um, you know, racism had a great deal to do with the fact the West never took Japan seriously. Yeah, Japanese uh, figures were, were comic figures in our cartoons. Yes. Um, but, but the Allies chose the Solomon Islands to begin their counteroffensive, specifically the southern Solomon Islands of Guadalcanal, Tulagi. That and- was because that was because the, ja- the, 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 the Japanese had had, had taken. The, the, had taken the the, the southern uh, Solomons in May because they wanted to extend their search radius for their for their flying boats into the into the Coral Sea because U.S. shipping routes from the U.S. to Australia went through the Coral Sea, and uh, so they so they took Tulagi, a small island uh, just off Guadalcanal, and and turned that into a seaplane base, and then. We discovered by by chance when a B-17 was was um, raiding Tulagi, we discovered in July 
that they that they were starting to build an airfield on Guadalcanal, and that would have been an airfield that could that could have supported bombers. And if they took if they had that, they could cut the U.S. supply line to uh, to Australia. And we'll get and so to that they, in a moment, obviously, because <laughs> that's yeah, a major part had, of the story. They had to, so, so they had to take Guadalcanal, and they had to take it fast. My guest on today's Let It Lope at Large is Thomas McKelvey Cleaver. His book, The Cactus Air Force, Air War Over Guadalcanal, published by Osprey Publishing. Where does the name the Cactus Air Force come from? Uh, the code name for Guadalcanal and, and, and Allied ra- uh, radio communication was Cactus. Why? So they became, uh, and so they became the Cactus Air Force. I, I would imagine that the the, on a subconscious level, the reason they use cactus is a cactus is prickly and you don't want to grab it. Ah. And so this was a kind of a, a difficult place to go after? Oh. Hmm. Uh, the, the Japanese didn't expect a landing. There was, there was, there was a very small force on the island. The, uh, the Marines had the islands, well, they had the area around the, uh, around the airfield secured within, within two days. Um, they did, the, the rest of the island was, uh, was not at that time uh, being used, but, well, I mean, it wasn't being used by either side in the fight until the Japanese decided that they had to, to, to come back and, and, not, and, and knock out the, uh, the Marines and get them off and get them out. Um, but the fighting all took place. The, uh, the 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 perimeter was about a mile and a half to two miles around the uh, around the airfield, and the rest of the island um, was open. Um, the Japanese would land on the north end and, and bring their troops into the jungle to attack the uh, to attack the Marines. So they began constructing a seaplane base and an airfield on Guadalcanal in early June 1942. Uh, right, and and their goal was to establish a permanent base to yes. to main, to control the era that they had conquered. Yeah, to to, to control to, to to be able to interdict Allied supply lines in the Coral Sea. Was that the yes. uh, the ba- the airfield that later became known as Henderson? Yes, yes, that was that that was the airfield that became known as Henderson. That was not the, uh, the 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 ideal place for an airfield, was it? it well, no. It, the, the airfield. I mean, it was the only largely open flat space on the island, so it, it was kind of a choice of you know. There's there it is, open and flat. That's where you can do it. Um, but uh, there was a lot. Of, there, to this day, they have drainage problems on that uh, on that uh, on that airfield. Yeah, it was uh, Major Marion Carl described it as the only place on earth uh, you could stand up to your knees in mud and still get t- dust in your eyes. Yes, I was about to quote that. <laughs> yes, that's exactly the truth. I've had I've had a couple of friends of mine go to visit Guadalcanal, and they say they don't understand how anybody can live there. Mm. At least as far as a Westerner is concerned. Well, you're a pilot and an aviation historian. Have you been there? Uh, do you? No. Huh. No. I, the, the the closest I the closest I ever got when I was in the Navy was we got to we got to New Zealand. Uh huh. So you but I you did see some you, you did see some fighting at one point. 
I was in Vietnam. I, uh, mm-hmm. I was a I was an I was an enlisted member of an admiral staff, the admiral staff that was in charge of uh, of what turned into the the Tonkin Gulf incident. As I, I mentioned in my introduction, it's been claimed that the three months of air battles between August 20th, 1942, when the first Marine Air Unit arrived on the island, and November 15th, when the last enemy attempt to retake the island was defeated, were perhaps the most important of the Pacific War. Uh, why would that be? The Japanese didn't officially surrender until September 2nd, 1945, that nearly three years later. Well, because because after they took, after they failed to take Guadalcanal, and after they failed to 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 push the Americans off, they they never they never undertook another offensive operation. They were they were on they were playing defense for the rest of the war. Mm-hmm. So that was the turning point from the Allies playing defense to the Japanese playing defense. Although they did. Um kill an awful lot of people and destroy a lot of uh, American material. They certainly did. In fact, the last six months of the war was the bloodiest part of the war. But this, you, you agree this was a turning point? Yes. yes. Because before then, the Japanese are taking are undertaking uh, offensive operations, and after that, they aren't. So no. As clear a turning point as you can get, I think, mm-hmm. or. Do you think the Japanese realized that, or the uh, leadership certainly did? Mm-hmm. Do we have records of of uh, what they were thinking at the time? Um, Yamamoto um, <clears throat> is recorded uh, is recorded as telling them that they, when he, when he was asked what 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 to do after after they retreated from uh, after he evacuated Guadalcanal, he said, make peace. Oh, that early. Wow. Well, he told them he could only, mm. he could only fight, fight the U.S. for six months, and he was already into nine months. Now, the Allied plan to attack the Southern Solomons was conceived by a U.S. Navy Admiral, Ernest King, who was commander-in-chief of the U.S. fleet. Uh, what, was, what was his thinking he, um, well, Admiral, the, the, the U.S. Had, de- had determined before the war <clears throat> that we would pursue a, a, a Europe-first policy, a defeat Germany first. King never signed on to that. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, as, soon as, as soon as the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor, his attitude was, we're not going to give them two years, three years to, to, to sit on their laurels. We're going to attack them immediately. Mm-hmm. And he just proceeded to... You know, to, to to not listen to everybody saying, but the rules are, and we decided that, and he said, no, we're going to attack. Well, complicating it all was the fact that Germany declared war in the United States after Pearl Harbor. Yes, Hitler, the, the one and only time that was a in big his mistake on his part. That Hitler, ever, that, that Hitler ever kept his word huh. to his to his eternal regret. What he had promised the Japanese that he would support them. Yeah, well, the the, tripart- the tripartite pact mm-hmm. that they signed in in, uh, in in November 1940 said that that if if any one of the three countries, Germany, Japan, or Italy, became involved in a war with any other country, the other two would declare war on that country. And so, Japan attacked us, and we 
and we declared war on them. And if if Hitler had not declared war, it's very likely the Congress wouldn't have the, the Congress wasn't ready yet. Been, there would have been no unilateral uh, United States declaration of war against Germany at that point. So the only reason we got involved in the full war was Hitler was stupid enough to to uh, to, to say that the mongrel nation will never defeat us and declare war on us. What was the state of U.S. armaments at the time? Were we thinking that we might wind up being drawn into a war? Oh, oh, yes. Fortunately, fortunately there's, a, there's, a very, there's a very good book by Doris Kearns Goodwin, uh, No Ordinary Time, by, uh, which goes into, into Roosevelt's uh, very clear thinking about the, about the issue. Uh, Roosevelt realized in, uh, when, the, when the French fell that it was going to be inevitable that we would be involved. And uh, the, the Two Ocean Navy Act was passed that summer of 1940, and that began the construction of what <coughs> eventually became the new Navy. That was also um, six months after that, he, he issued the call for, for the production of 50,000 aircraft a year and, a 50, and the production of 50,000 pilots a year, which everybody thought was impossible and was uh, achieved by 1943. Um, so we were in the process of building up, but uh, but on on December on December seventh, there were in the U.S. the the only fighter in the U.S. Army Air Force uh, that could be used was the P thirty eight. There were a total of sixty five of them on in the inventory, of which only twenty one were considered combat capable. That's wow. a good idea of where we started from. Um, the um, the, the Guadalcanal campaign was was fought with the old navy, the pre the pre war navy, the the the, uh, the six carrier the, the carriers that had had been built before the war. The new navy didn't appear until the summer of forty three, um, but uh, but after the old navy had pretty much sacrificed itself. The the Guadalcanal campaign is the bloodiest battle the U.S. Navy ever fought, ever. In terms of sinking sh- uh, ships, sunk. Uh, they, there were higher casualties in in numbers of dead um, at Okinawa with the kamikazes, but there were more ships sunk at at, at uh, Guadalcanal and the Solomons. Now, er- Admiral Ernest King's plan was to deny the use of the Southern Solomon Islands by the Japanese as bases to to right. threaten the supply so we, routes so between we, the United States and Australia. And and yeah, to, to use them as starting points for a campaign. Should be. What? So, oh, it was to he, the main thing was to keep our our connection to Australia. That was what they were worried about. Mm-hmm. Because Australia was seen as a, a necessary ally here. We'd lost the Philippines. It was the, it was the base. For, it, was, it, it was at the time I was seen it was the only base anywhere close that we could uh, that we could start fighting back from. Mm. Well, there were already uh, new Japanese bases in the area. Uh, we, we were trying to right. isolate them, uh, like uh, the one at, at Rabaul. Uh, once Rabaul was taken, which was the main Jap- which was the main harbor in that in that in that part of the world, um, the, the Solomon's campaign was the ultimate goal of the Solomon's campaign was always to eventually retake to retake or neutralize Rabaul. But also but to the retake step, the Philippines, the no? Take, what? Also to retake the Philippines. The, the Philippines was MacArthur's 
after McCarthy got kicked out, he was, yeah. I shall return. Mm-hmm. Um, it, one can make an argument. The, the, there was really no reason to go back to the Philippines. If you defeated Japan, you'd have the Philippines. Um, MacArthur, uh, we could we could we could go on for hours about the ego of Douglas MacArthur, mm-hmm. but um, he but once he got kicked out of the Philippines, he he was determined to go back regardless. It it had nothing to do with overall war strategy and everything to do with assaging the ego of Douglas MacArthur. Um, the at, eventually in the summer of '44 after. MacArthur's uh, forces had taken, had had retaken New Guinea, and after uh, and after Rabaul had been uh, neutralized, uh, the next step was, and and the United States had taken the Marianas in the Central Pacific campaign. The, the the next step was seen, and there was there were two arguments. The Navy wanted to take Formosa, Taiwan, and MacArthur wanted to go back to the Philippines. Uh, the Philippines were really a strategic sideshow because if you took the Philippines, that wasn't going to defeat Japan. But if you took Formosa, that would put the United States in position to attack the Japanese in eastern China, an additional base to attack Japan from, uh, in, ad- in addition to the Marianas, and uh, would have been far more strategically useful. But um, as we all, as everything, politi- all politics are local, and wars are politics by other means. Um, the, the argument between MacArthur uh, for the Philippines and Nimitz for the for Formosa eventually had to be settled by Roosevelt. And in the summer of '44, Roosevelt <coughs> was getting ready to to run for re-election for a fourth time, and MacArthur let it be known that if I don't get to go to the Philippines. I'm going to resign my commission, come home, and run for the Republican nomination for for president and run against you. And uh, there was a possibility if he'd have done that, he, he, since he'd had such a massive publicity ca- machine going for him. Uh, it was always it was it was always said uh, three fourths of MacArthur's staff was the, in the public relations department. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, so so Roosevelt uh, met met with the, both of them in, in Honolulu. And he said, which, which place can be invaded by October? And Nimitz had to say, well, we can't go to Formosa before January. And MacArthur said, I will land in the Philippines in October. And so that's why they went. The, the reason for that was the, the New Deal ended in November 1942 because of the fact the United States invaded North Africa the weekend after the elections of 42, the off-year elections of 42, instead of the weekend before. And so the American people were disappointed and disaffected and, uh, and upset because there wasn't anything good happening and they'd had all the bad news. So they voted out the, uh, the, new, de- the new Deal majority in the, in the, in the Congress. And, that, and, that, and so Roosevelt realized that, you know, um, I need good news before the election. And so he went with Good news. It's a, it's kind of similar to where we are today, you might say. Well, they were suddenly fighting uh, a major war on two, in two different areas, totally two different fronts. Uh, you right. mentioned uh, Admiral Chester Nimitz. Uh, he and Vice Admiral Robert L. Gormley uh, directed the Allied offensive in the uh, the Solomons. Uh, were they? 
uh, in conflict with MacArthur? No. Um, MacArthur saw originally, we get into military bureaucracy here, originally MacArthur was, put, was given the, South, the Southwest Pacific Command because that way they could keep him as far away from America as they could get him. And, uh, and that included the Philippines, that included the Solomon Islands. When, when King decided he wanted to invade the Solomons, he was not about to, get, to put the U.S. Navy under the overall command of Douglas MacArthur, who didn't know that the pointed end of a boat goes in front. Um, <laughs> And um, so he got, so so he went, he was he was the chief of naval operations. He went to the Joint Chiefs, and he got a bureaucratic carve out, and he had created the South Pacific Theater, and that included the Solomons, and that was given to the Navy, and so there, and and then they and then they assaged MacArthur by saying, "We're going to send you a couple extra divisions, and you can fight in New Guinea," and it was. The, the politics of war, uh, the politics of war, to me, are almost more interesting than the battles when you get into it. But the, actually, the first counteroffensive by the Allies in the Pacific Theater was uh, when the 1st Marine Division landed on Tulagi and Guadalcanal and captured yes. that Japanese airfield or uncompleted Japanese airfield you mentioned earlier. And we'll come back to that in just a few moments. This is... Leonard Lopate at Large and WBAI New York, 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org. Enjoying my conversation with Thomas McKelvey Cleaver. If you signed up to become a member of WBAI during today's show with a contribution of $50 or more, you can receive a free copy of his book, The Cactus Air Force Air War Over Guadalcanal. To do that, just call 212-209-2950 or go online to give to WBAI.org during today's show, and we'll be happy to send you a copy. That's 212 209 2950 or give and then the number two wbai.org but don't forget to make that $50 contribution in the name of Leonard Lopate at large and we thank you if you do that and return now to Thomas McKelvey Cleaver whose book The Cactus Air Force Air War Over Guadalcanal is published by Osprey uh, he uh, brings a quite a bit of expertise to this project. He's a screenwriter, pilot, pilot, and aviation historian. Now let's get back to that, uh, that airfield. Uh, the, the one, can I make it, can I make an offer for your, re, for, for your listeners? Please. Because I'm a big believer in PB and in, in NPR. If, well, we're if not NPR. I have, wait, book, wait, I have to interrupt you. We are not NPR. We are public radio. We are well, Pacific radio. radio. But I, right, I understand what you. I, I just meant that. Um, okay. Anyway, if your readers buy my, if your readers send you the fifty bucks and they get my book, and they send you a card 
that they bought that they got to get mm. you get it well you get their address or an email send me the car. you can send me the address and i will send them a sticker signed by the author that they can put in the book oh okay that's great thank you so much Let's get back to that airfield. Uh, the Allies continued construction on it immediately after uh, uh, they, they got there using captured Japanese equipment and renamed it Henderson Field for Major Lofton or Henderson, who was the first Marine Corps pilot killed during the Battle of Midway. Uh, but as you pointed out, it was a rather poor airfield. Uh, how long did it take to make it something that was uh, used— Useful, considering the fact that it was being bombed every day. Um, they just got they, um, they got very good at repairs. They ha- they had they had dirt fill um, they had dirt fill, and the, what they would do is the, um, one pilot described that that after a raid, all of a sudden the field sprouted plants. They would stick a plant in the hole so people could you know sort of like a flag that you know mm-hmm. watch out there's a hole, and they and and. They, a, a Navy construction battalion was one of the first people. Was one of the first units sent there after the invasion, and they and they got very good at um, at repair at repairing the field, and eventually um, they put down pierced pierced uh, steel planking, which uh, helped better. But of course, then if the if the PSP got got hit by a bomb, and then it was a big repair job to to refill that to recover that. But um, that was how they dealt with it. The um, the field was really uh, difficult. Um, they also set up a second airfield, uh, Fighter One, which was also called called the Cow Pasture, which was a dirt strip nearby, um, which was which actually had much worse drainage. But it was also they they needed it. Um, there's a very famous thing when the uh, when when the Japanese attacked Bloody Ridge on September 11th. Uh, they were so close to victory, if they had taken the ridge, they would have been able to take the airfield, that um, General Vandegrift and his, and his senior officers were planning how to evacuate the survivors into the center of the, in, in, into the inland of the island and commence guerrilla warfare against the Japanese. That's how, that's how, how, how afraid they were they were to lose. Um, they, they called in the, the army pilot, they, um, from the from the P from the P thirty nine squadron, um, which was a which was used for ground attack, and they told him that he had to make a he had to make an attack at dawn, <laughs> and it was in a rainstorm, and um, the, and they had enough fuel on the on the field for four airplanes, so they fueled four of the Aero Cobras, and they and the field was muddy, and the first one took off and got off the ground, the second one. And it was so bad. As one got hit, hit the midway of the runway, the next one started rolling. The first one got off the ground. The second one got caught in ruts and got, and got slowed down. The pilot tried to haul it. He he dropped full flaps. He pulled it up. It stalled and it crashed at the end of the runway and exploded. The third one was halfway down the runway at that point and flew through the explosion to get airborne, and the fourth one managed to pull up and get over the explosion. The three airplanes then proceeded over to, over to, the, to the ridge and, and attacked, the, uh, attacked the Japanese and broke the Japanese attack and thereby saved the island. We but should that's point- the kind of fighting they had to do. Well, we should point out that there were other problems. Uh, the living conditions on Guadalcanal were uh, 
Very difficult. <laughs> Pilots and mechanics lived in mud-floored tents in a flooded coconut plantation called Mosquito Grove, and many of them contracted malaria, dysentery, dengue fever, and fungal infections. Yeah, my 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 former father-in-law told me that when you weren't sick, you were being shot at. And then sometimes you were sick and being shot at. <laughs> Horrifying. Uh, it, and was, then, it really was. And then the Japanese battleships uh, Congo and Haruna bombarded Henderson Field during the night of October 13th with 14-inch guns and destroyed most of the planes, killed 46 Americans, including nine pilots. So right. this was a rather scary time, wasn't it? Were there people? Everybody, everybody in- afterwards called it the bombardment. Mm-hmm. My, uh, my former father, I asked my father-in-law about that, and he said it was the most terrifying six hours of his entire life. Um, and, this was, and, and that was 40 years later. Mm. Um, they, uh, he, he described it to me. He said they sounded like train. The shells sounded like trains coming at them. So, the, the were people afraid that we might actually wind up losing? They were constantly. They they, they were afraid they were going to lose right up to the minute they won. Hmm. Um, and and it was and it was that close run of thing. Um, Nimitz finally Nimitz finally came out. To, to 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 see how things were at the uh, at the uh, beginning of October, and he realized that Gormley, who was his old friend and his and his and his ally in the in the Navy, and and they had a relationship going back to when they were midshipmen, um, that Gormley was a defeatist, and that the and that the entire command the upper command was uh, resigned to being defeated, and so. He told Gormley, so he couldn't fire his old friend on the spot. So he sent Halsey down to 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 make a, to make an inspection tour, and Halsey reported things are pretty bad. And at that point, he directed Halsey to to take over. Once he had him there, it was another bit of finessing, and uh, and Gormley was up. Uh, people were really uh, the the. The, the attitude, morale-wise, this was Halsey's finest hour um, when he became commander of, of, the, of the South. It was the darkest time of the war, and, and, and he came in, and he just he had an enthusiasm, and he said, we're not going to be defeated, and I'm going to do what we have to take, and people believed him because he said it, and it did. And, um, you know, he proceeded, and within 10 days of his arrival, we got defeated at, at, at Santa Cruz. It was a tactical defeat that sank the Hornet. It was a strategic victory in, in that the Japanese couldn't exploit it. Um, the Japanese suffered, uh, the, the Japanese didn't lose any carrier, any carriers, but they, but they got uh, two of them damaged, and they, and they had air losses that were as, as bad as ours. In fact, for them... Their air losses were worse than ours because they could never replace those trained air. Yeah, well, I have that list here. But first, I want to tell our listeners that my guest is Thomas McKelvey Cleaver. The cact- his, his book, The Cactus Air Force, Air War Over Guadalcanal, is published by Osprey Publishing. This is WBAI 
in New York, 99.5 FM, and streaming live at WBAI.org. So as you were pointing out, the Cactus Air Force's dive bombers and torpedo planes sank or destroyed 17 large enemy vessels, including a Japanese battleship, a heavy cruiser, a light cruiser, three destroyers, 12 transports, and sank or heavily damaged a number of other ships, including one heavy cruiser and five light cruisers. So uh, we were inflicting a lot of damage on them as well. And they were inflicting a lot of damage on us. We lost 94 pilots killed or missing in action. Uh, Plus the the, the ship losses. Um, At the Battle of Sabo Island, we lost, which was two days after the invasion, uh, a Japanese uh, cruiser force came in at night. The, the, The Japanese were... The Japanese had planned for years that they would fight at night, and the United States Navy never did. And so they were they were superior to us. They had superior equipment. Um, our our radar wasn't that wasn't that much of an improvement at that time. Um, and so they, they, there were a series of night battles fought. The first one we lost four cruisers. They lost none. Um, then there, then there was the uh, the naval battle of Guadalcanal. On, um, on, on on November uh, 11, 12th, the night of that, in a storm, um, we lost um, we lost uh, three of the, three of the four uh, three of the four cruisers badly hit, um, and um, badly hit and 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 knocked out. Um, I once the, the U.S. of San Francisco um, was one of them, and they were they were so badly hit in the bridge. Um, I um, about 20 years ago, I met I met a man, a man uh, um, at, a, at an event who was the uh, sole survivor of the bridge of the uh, of the uh, San Francisco. He'd been on the signal bridge, and he was a, mar- a marine gunnery sergeant. He he climbed down and to to the main bridge, which took a 14 inch hit, mm. and uh, and the admiral died in his arms. Uh, one 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 officer was left alive, the navigator, and when he came to he he took command of the ship, and um, and steered it through the uh, through the battle and got it up. But the, uh, the the San Francisco managed to come back to, to the United States to, for repair. They took the bridge off of the ship and put a new bridge. And today, if you go to San Francisco, you can if you go out to the end of Geary Boulevard, um, there's a the, the bridge is there. I saw when I was a young sailor, I I went out to see it, and um, it looked like Swiss cheese. These big holes <laughs> through it, and uh, at, at that time, nobody. It was it was lying there almost in disrepair. Nobody was, nobody was particularly caring for it. I literally, I climbed up and stood inside it. Um, nowadays, um, things are a little bit better. I I worked in San Francisco politics later, and I managed to convince my boss to put it, put in some money to to paint it so it didn't rust to death. And now now they the the, the bridge has been has been turned into a monument. They they do a lot of things, but you can go see it and just look at that at that thing. It's uh, it's a stunning thing to to contemplate. And as we mentioned earlier, uh, the fifteen Marine combat squadrons on Guadalcanal not only suffered from uh, combat casualties, but uh, there were quite a few who got sick with severe malaria. Yes. They had, um, something like 20% had to be evacuated medically. Wow. Uh, a, a, a squadron, basically, 
a, a squadron's tour on the island was 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 no longer than six weeks. By six by the end of six weeks, they were they were over over and done with. A couple a couple of squadrons didn't even make it a month. Japanese so they, records before show. Had, before go ahead. The survivors were just you know mm. shot. <laughs> well, that was something that uh, was different in the Pacific. The combat in the Pacific then in Europe, well, people just dying from uh, diseases uh, that yeah, uh, the yeah, Japanese Europe, had it, nothing to do with. Yeah, Europe had Europe had no, had nothing to do. With. Plus, the, the the fighting was just more intense uh, the, at that at that time. The hmm. the the fighting in Europe didn't get that intense until until the until after D Day. But um, you know. Fight, the fighting in Europe in in the in the last year of the war in Europe, um, most of the squadrons who were there of the various airports took over 100% casualties, killed and wounded in those 11 months. That's and that's basically what was going on at Guadalcanal too. Killed and wounded. Now, Japanese records show that several Marine and Army pilots were captured in Guadalcanal after being shot down over uh, jungle areas that the Japanese occupied. And none of those pilots survived their captivity. No, they didn't, and uh, that that was common throughout. Um, when I when I've written about other so the, the 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 stories of the pilot of a pilot being captured, tortured, beheaded, um, shot. I mean, at Chichijima, they ate them. Oh my God! I'm not kidding. So, but we don't know. Uh, how many Japanese aircraft were lost during the um, Guadalcanal campaign? Do we? Uh, there, there's estimate. That a, a lot of the airplanes, a, a lot, a lot of the losses occurred on the way back. You have to understand they were flying from Rabaul to Guadalcanal, which is 600 miles one way, which is a very long distance in those days, mm-hmm. and uh, which is why they could only make one raid a day. This is pre-jet. Yeah, way way pre jet. Um, it would take it would take a four hour it would take four hours to get there. Fortunately, that was that was their 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 early warning was the the coast watchers on the island uh, on the islands up the chain would you know hey they're flying overhead they're headed your way, and and send radio messages to them. Um, but the uh, probably the, uh, the 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 losses. Were uh, uh, most, uh, many of the Japanese losses occurred with the airplane being damaged in battle over Guadalcanal and then succumbing to its damage on the way back. Um, it's been estimated that actually the losses were about one to one overall, really. But the main thing was is we held Guadal it, it, we held Guadalcanal, which is you know, and they did, which is why we won. <laughs> now. The the events that we're discussing all ended uh, on what did what did I say uh, November fifteenth. How did it, how did they come to an end? The Japanese just stopped. That was after the after the naval after the Japanese lost the Yamashiro in in the in the in battle with the USS Washington, the the, the one American battleship battle of the war. Um, the, ja- the, the Japanese concluded that they um, that they couldn't continue that they couldn't continue to support the troops on the Japanese Navy, 
that they couldn't continue to support the troops on the island, and they began a and they began a uh, an evacuation. They were they were actually pretty successful. They managed to com- they managed to do the evacuation without the U.S. forces on the island realizing that that was what was go- was going on. That they weren't resupply missions; they were evacuation missions. And eventually, they had they had evacuated by the end of January, in '43. Well, but interestingly, the the war doesn't end until the atomic bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, uh, and that's in August 1945. So actually, it wasn't the, it wasn't due to the to the atomic bombings. That's not why the war ended. Um. Well, okay, we all believe that. Uh, yeah, that's the way I've always understood it. We dropped but, those bombs, but, and the I Japanese said I, enough. I, I believed it until I got, until I did research um, mm. on 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 August ninth, the day the day that we that we bombed Nagasaki. Uh, the the Russians entered the war in the Pacific as Stalin had agreed to do at Yalta. He agreed ninety days after the end of the war in Europe, he would enter the war in the Pacific, and the Japanese had removed. Most of their troops from Manchuria, the Japanese defenses were all down in in Kyushu to 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 meet our to meet our invasion, which we probably wouldn't have gotten off the islands. I have talked to to Marines who who visited the the the, the beaches they were supposed to invade in November, uh, right after the right after the war, and they saw the defenses they would have to overcome, and they concluded they wouldn't have been able to. Um, but all of the Japanese defenses were in the southern end of the island. They had no defenses against, they had no thought that they were ever going to fight the Russians. And the mm-hmm. Russians had pretty much taken Manchuria by the, uh, with, most of it within, within a week. The, and the, and the uh, Japanese were aware that the, that the Russians could take Sakhalin Island and invade Hokkaido by, the, by, by September ahead of the American invasion, and that, and that they had no defenses, the Russians would be up against nothing, and it could take the entire place. The, uh, when you go back and study, the, on, on, on August 9th, when the, when the bomb was dropped, the, it wasn't mentioned in the, in, the, in the meeting that day of the Japanese Supreme War Council. The entire meeting that day was over the Russian invasion. Um, oh the Japanese knew what the Russians had done in, in, in Germany after the war. They knew what, um, and they knew that you know they they they've been traditional enemies for you know for eighty years, and what and what they and what they so eventually they surrendered and they surrendered to us, and then they told us, oh yeah, it was it was the bombs. Hmm. It wasn't the I mean they had we we killed more people in Tokyo with firebombs than were killed in both atomic bombings. On March 9, 1945, they killed over 180,000 people in 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 the space of uh, of, a, of 12 hours with firebombing from 300 bombers, um, and um, and and so, by that point, every Japanese city of any size had been bombed. The reason was that that, that Nagasaki and Hiroshima were bombed was they were the ones that were the least bombed. They wanted to find out what the bomb was capable of doing. Mm-hmm. And the interesting thing about Nagasaki, which I found out first time, was when I vi- was when our ship visited Nagasaki in 1964. Um, Nagasaki was the most anti-emperor, pro pro-Western place in Japan. 
it was it had been traditionally for for 400 years it had been the the place where where the uh where the west was allowed to enter japan mm-hmm. um before before japan was closed off by the shogunate for for 150 years um, in the 17th century, there was it was also highly Christian. I, I, in the 17th century, there was a war, there was a battle fought against the against the shogunate after after Christianity was declared. Illegal. I didn't know and any of this, they, but we've run out of time. We didn't know it. Nobody knows it. You, you well, have to go why, there to find it out. That's why I invited you on our show, and I'm so grateful to you for telling us so many things that. Uh, we're learning for the first time. Thomas McKelvey Cleaver, his book, The Cactus Air Force, Air War Over Guadalcanal, which is published by Osprey. What a pleasure it's been talking with you. Thank you very much. You've been one of the best interviewers I've done. Thank you very much. For well, that. I appreciate your saying that. Uh, unfortunately, that does bring us to the end of our show. If you're just discovering this program and would like to hear more of our one-hour deep dive interviews, you can access our nearly 700 past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. Our podcast, which has surpassed 1 million plays, is available on iTunes, Apple, and everywhere else you get your podcasts. And would love for you to check us out on Twitter. If you'd like to write to me, my email address is leonardlopate at WBAI.org. Before I sign off today, I need to ask you to support WBAI to keep the show coming to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. We're asking all of our listeners who have the means to do so to make a contribution at whatever level they're comfortable with by calling 212-209-2950 or by going online to give to WBAI.org right now. That's give and then the number 2, WBAI.org. We need your help to to keep bringing you this unique in-depth content, information you don't get anywhere else, and also to just to pay the basic bills that WBAI faces. It's always a problem, it's a special struggle right now during this pandemic. And as I mentioned earlier, anyone who makes a contribution of $50 a month or more will receive a free a copy of the book we've been discussing, The Cactus Air Force, Air War Over Guadalcanal by Thomas McKelvey Cleaver. So why not make that call right now at 212-209-2950 or go online to give to WBAI.org. You might also consider becoming a sustaining member, what we call a BAI buddy, and we'll say thank you with a BAI tote bag to anyone who signs up to become a BAI buddy for $10 a month or more. Uh, We hope that you can join us again tomorrow when Jonathan Zimmerman will discuss his new book, Free Speech and Why You Should Give a Damn. We'll see you then.